Welcome back to another episode of the Lead with Data podcast with myself, Rena Gami. In addition to being a podcast host, I also lead a business intelligence and data analytics recruitment practice. This is the podcast where I bring you some of the most talented data leaders who have contributed in significant uplift of BI and data analytics capabilities in some of the most progressive organizations across Australia. I want to share the stories of their careers, challenges they faced, and the reality of how the recent pandemic may or may not have impacted their roles and responsibilities in their current organizations. Here's where we get to learn what some of the professionals in this field are doing right now. Welcome back to another episode of Lead with Data. My guest on the show today is Cam Curry. Cam is a data professional who has over 20 years experience in the industry and has held a number of executive and leadership positions working in highly complex data environments. On the show today, we talk about data transformation leadership and the emergence of data observability. He's extremely passionate about this and also runs his own advisory firm where he goes out and talks to organizations about how to build an environment and create an environment to get the best out of your data transformation journey. I look forward to sharing the insights of this episode with you and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Cam, for joining me today. Thank you. Love, lovely to be here. Yeah, thank you. Now, I just wanted to, I suppose, first start off, as, as I always do, is uh, just provide a bit of an introduction um, to the guest. And, you know, there's no one else better than you to do that. So I'll get you to give the listeners a bit of a background and um, tell us a bit more about, um, I suppose, your history to date and, and what you're doing these days. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I always get a bit very nervous when someone asks me to tell me tell tell them what I've done over the last twenty years because I can't <laughs> recall most of it. But um, so look, I've been involved in this thing called data and technology for probably twenty odd years now, uh, spanning Australia and, and New Zealand and a bit of time in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, really starting in a in a very small sort of setup where I was owning the whole shop end to end. So that's all about technical, you know, platforms, data. Uh, business uh, knowledge as well, uh, and then moving into larger sort of roles and larger companies, uh, and growing this this thing called data. Now you'd you'd understand that over the last twenty odd years, the environment's moved a hell of a lot since when I was first doing it in, in the late nineties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I've just been I've been probably my my background and my and my expertise is really building a strategy getting some really good people, uh, you know, um, around me to execute on that strategy and then growing the sort of technical footprint of, of the company. Um, mostly dealing with, you know, the, the big warehousing type technologies. Uh, Microsoft sort of came online with some of their front-end technologies sort of early 2000s. And then the last sort of 10 years of my career, uh, more senior management, senior leadership type roles, still involved in strategy and execution, but managing more and larger, larger teams. And now the last sort of five or six years building out, everyone's moving to cloud. So I've been heavily involved in migrating some stuff that I've built previously with, with, uh, with some really good, good people around the Oracle and the on-premise type te- technologies and moving those into cloud. So um, always been interested and involved heavily in data. Yeah, I think data's probably been the, the, the one thing that's really held my interest over the last 20-odd years because it's very, very fluid. Uh, no day is the same with data. Yeah. Um, and there's been some amazing advancements in technology 
and and they can be good and bad because obviously you know the more you you sort of need technology to to help you, you do your day job, the more you lose sight sometimes of what the outcome is of the of the data you're using. So so right now um, I've moved away from working in the in the corporate sphere. Um, obviously never say never to get get back into that environment. But um, sort of working now as sort of advisory and working on strategy and, uh, you know, mostly data strategy and execution, uh, looking at talent uh, and just trying to help companies sort of, you know, realise their their sort of dream as data explodes, you know, around the world. Um, Australia is no different in that space. And obviously with the advent of privacy and ethics and how do we use customer data going forward, it's, it's still a bit of a learning, a learning curve, I think, for all, all companies. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, I think the topic that we're going to talk about today, um, you know, is is a really interesting one and, and, you know, somewhat very relevant to what you've been doing over the last 10 years around um, data transformation leadership, because as we know, a lot of companies are going through, they call it data transformation, um, and there's so many different versions of it when you talk to various different organisations, um, but people who have been in it um, and, you know, been sort of working through it tend to sort of have a really good idea of where where you need to start, what it needs to look like, and particularly coming from, I think, a really complex environment such as the, the organisations that you work from, it can be really, really challenging. So I guess what I'm keen to sort of um, share today with the listeners is really around data transformation leadership and emergence of data observability. I can never say that word. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I guess just keen to sort of hear what your thoughts are on that and um, yeah, you know, get a, get a bit more of an understanding of how you've been able to apply that in the organisations that you've worked in. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, I think everyone's trying to transform. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the larger companies now are moving, you know, from those heavy data centres on-premise into the cloud. Um, and I've sort of I've noticed over the years that people tend to um, tend to really enjoy the PowerPoint world, right? And they will and they'll obsess and they'll spend three months building some beautiful PowerPoints, and they'll look fantastic. Uh, and everyone agrees, you know, having that North Star strategy is a good idea. But where people have struggled is to turn that really good thinking that's on a on a PowerPoint deck into something that's actually um, you can actually execute on. Mm-hmm. Um, and all and all companies um, have um, have cycles of money that they need to use to spend on this thing called data transformation. So it's really trying to understand where you want to start. And I've I've always found in my career you you have to start somewhere. You should always start small. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're if you're trying to transition or transform a process of that impacts a customer, right? So. Um, Every customer nowadays has a pretty big data footprint. Yeah. You know, whether you're whether you're selling ice creams or selling a banking product or doing insurances, um, as soon as the customer interacts with you, uh, it doesn't even need to be through like a digital medium either. It can be through, you know, through a, a paper-based thing that gets then turned into a digital transaction. Um, you've you've got to really be aware of that customer footprint. So I've always found you should always start with a with a logical flow of um, data. So pick a customer that you have within your company and you man- and you almost do a, you know, a, a, a drop of dye of that customer and watch it flow through. So if I'm thinking about 
let's say you've got 10 legacy systems that, that yeah. you capture all, all your data and put that drop of dye in and just see where that customer record goes through that, through that old ecosystem. And there'll be some stuff that everyone knows, you know, what goes from system A to B to C to D. But if you put that drop of dye in, you'll see how it sort of can, can scatter across areas of your legacy ecosystem that you never knew existed. And there could be half a dozen manual processes that someone's doing in the weekend that you didn't know about. Yeah. Um, there could be a process that has no, you know, governance or, or you know, you know, written control over it. So I've always found what, what works best is definitely have your strategy, definitely have a North Star that what, what you want to look like mm-hmm. in 6, 12, 18 months, but road test it first with a proper example. And that'll unlock a whole lot of learnings and you may have to tweak your strategy, et cetera, et cetera, um, opposed to starting with a technical conversation that says, oh, I'm going to use Databricks and I'm going to use Airflow and I'm yeah. going to use AWS and I'm going to be multi-cloud and it's going to be wonderful. Those things need to occur, absolutely. But road test it with a real example first to, to, to unlock exactly what the problem statement might actually look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of, um, I suppose, understanding a data environment, um, and again, you know, I'm referring back to sort of being in fairly complex environments as well, um, as well as sort of non-complex environments, but how do you understand what the data environment is and in your, I mean, I know we talked about it, I think, in, in some of the notes that we shared around what is a calm environment in the data land. So how do you get from an environment that you don't really know to building a calm an environment agent. Yeah, look, I, I think, I mean, if I if I sat here and told you uh, it's easy to do that, then I'd be lying. <laughs> um, I've never worked in a in a company organization where the where the environment's been like a smooth lake and it's just been mm-hmm. perfect and nothing ever happens and it's just wonderful. It's a utopian experience. Yeah. But um, I have worked where we've gone from a, from a from chaos into order a wee bit yeah. and having a chaotic data data system and environment to one that's less chaotic mm-hmm. rather than calm. Because you think about it, so data data never sleeps. Data is something that is different every single day. Um, and I sort of liken it to trying to paint a portrait on the ocean, on the, on the physical water of the ocean. Now, if that ocean is dead flat, um, you might have a chance of painting something that looks like a portrait. Now, even though you physically can't paint a water yeah. on it, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but if if the ocean is choppy and you've got gusts and you've got swells, it's almost impossible to actually get a baseline. And I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what are those foundational things you want to do with your data platforms that you have to have, otherwise you're always going to be in this chaos. Um, and it's things like we sort of talked about understanding the flow of information, even if you don't understand how you're going to do it technically. Yeah. Understand that you've got X amount of transactions. Understand how your data transforms, even if it's old technology, even if it's old shell scripts and SQL, it's old ETL. Understand how that data flows through the various parts of your your organisation so you can really get a a foundational picture of exactly how broken or how good your actual environment is. Yeah. So I definitely advocate to actually do that first and then you need to make a choice whether, whether your strategy is going to be balanced on outcome first. So, so let's say that, that you're going to migrate 
from on-premise into cloud. And we know that it takes probably three years on average for a very large corporate to get a baseline yeah. cloud-based environment. What is the impact to the people using that data over, over that, that, that three-year period? Now, that's, that's one question you can ask. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, it's going, to be, it's going to be minimal, it's going to be high, right? Uh, the other question is, okay, well, um, what, is the, what is the technology set that I'm going to use to underpin my 20 steps to actually get the data in, in the hands of people who need it? Which can sometimes you miss. Sometimes we don't, we don't think about the poor end user and all this. Yeah. I think as as technologists, we some of us are very obsessed about technologies, and and there are some fantastic technologies that are going to make everyone's life easier. But we, we tend to forget that why we're doing it. At the end of the day, someone needs that information for something, um, and sometimes we need to be mindful that. Well, what is the impact when we actually migrate from the old, you know, you know, to the new for the person? who has a day job and their day job doesn't really involve data, but it needs data, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd just be conscious that you need to start small, you need to, you need to be true to your, your, your strategy and your vision. You need to understand exactly how your data landscape operates, good, bad or indifferent. Yeah. And then you need to hollow out reasonably logically around how you can, how you can, Swap out one set of technologies and one set of skills because, you know, the other overlay of this is you're moving technology, but you're also moving capability. Yeah. So you, you may have a workforce challenge. Um, and anybody who's been within the um, data engineering market in Australia mm-hmm. for the last three years will understand that data engineers are the new lawyers. They get yeah. a, a lot of money, and yeah. rightly so, because they're, they're very, very skilled, but that's a, that's a challenge in itself, right? Mm-hmm. You haven't got people to actually do the work. It makes it pretty hard to actually execute on any 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 kind of strategy. So, I think just being mindful that there is, you know, to make that calm environment, you need to have a logical approach to how you want to how you want to start the journey. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think we we talked um, um, in in the in the opening off here. We said that, you know, sometimes we get we get really excited about the possible. Mm-hmm. And we try to eat the elephant all in one go. Yeah. So I think we need to always be excited about what's possible, um, you know, for our company's customers and everything else. And, and you know, data, data can unlock that. But there is a real critical step that you need to really be quite logical around how you actually get, get that calm. Like, and then you can actually take all the chaos and the emotion out of the system and have a fact-based conversation around, well, these are things we need to tackle. Um, you can have a conversation on which order you want to tack all those in, but at least you know what they are, yeah. rather, than, rather than being a a technical only only conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And look, I've um, often heard that you know people describe data as you know um, as a technology, and it's not really. I think we've just touched on that. I think it's the technology helps us enable and do better things with the data. And I think you're absolutely spot on, um, you know, when you're going through a digital transformation, you can't just focus on all the systems and, you know, all these platforms that can do all these amazing things. You've got to look at how much value it's going to give you or how much disruption it's going to cause your existing systems, processes, workforce. And are you actually going to get the result that you want? Because it's not always possible. I think every environment is so different and so unique. Um, and until you, like you said, you understand all the various different foundations, you really can't decide if 
Azure or AWS or, you know, which, which um, you know, which cloud system is going to be the right one for you? Yeah, I think that's right. I think technology should enable change. Yeah. Um, it should, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a bit of an old school person. I'm sort of, I sort of class myself as a, as a blue collar technologist. Yeah. And I often look at the first thing I look at, what's the cost of doing this? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it costs me $100 million to run my legacy platform, it's going to cost me $2 million, you know, to go to cloud. Yeah. But cloud's popular. Um, you know, it's a choice, you know. Maybe maybe it's a good idea because you'll, you'll get a three-year payback on that. But you need to always look at what is the cost of doing business Yeah. Um, as an outcome. And I think, you know, the point around people have called data a technology, I think that's, that's partially true. But you look at anyone using a social media platform, they don't sit down and, 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 and talk about how, how Twitter works, mm-hmm. right, and all the algorithms and, and how, how it's platformed in a, in a, in a data set. They, they say, oh, some idiots just posted something on Twitter that, I, you know, I, I don't agree with. They're using the data to serve a need or a want that that, that person may have. Yeah. I think that's critical for people. There's, everyone knows data is important. I'm talking about it in a in a business context now. Yeah. Everybody knows data is important, but most people don't care how they get the data. Mm-hmm. They just want the data to arrive when it needs to arrive. They want it to be accurate, and they want to have the autonomy and the flexibility to change it. Yeah. If they need to, um, that's probably eighty percent of the people who actually. When you talk about data, that's probably the first thing that pops into their mind. The other 20% are the the technologists who are charged with trying to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you find the balance with with, with that, Cam? Because obviously, as a, um, you know, I suppose as as a leader and and having a team that, you know, sort of tasked with creating this environment and getting better use out of the data, how do you balance that with the person that just wants to know what they want to know? but doesn't care about all the things in between? Um, again, I'd love to sit here and say I've, <laughs> I've got that, the answer to that. Um, <laughs> or, or in your experience, you yep. know, how have you managed that? Yeah, yeah. How have you delivered that through, through you know, companies, you know, again, where, you know, uh, you know, I'll use NAV as an example, where you've got people who've worked there for years and years, right? And you, you're trying to get them to change their mindset. You know, how, how do you, where do you find the balance? And at what point do you kind of go, okay, we'll go with this because we know we're going to get a better result versus knowing that actually if we were able to get them to do this, we're going to get a much better result. Like where do you as the leader sort yeah. of make that call? Well, it's like anything, whether I'm talking about data or trying to sell an ice cream, although mm. it might be a wee bit easier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You need to influence with a bit of what's in it for that person mm-hmm. or, you know, what's in it for that function. Um, so you always start there. Um, like most things, the, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle all, mm-hmm. all the time. You know, you'll have the process militants uh, who believe that the, the process is king. Then you'll have your, your person who just wants the data, who doesn't care how it gets there, and, and you could be breaking a whole lot of laws around, you know, data privacy, et cetera, et cetera. So you tend to start with <clears throat> here's everybody that's going to So I'll, I'll, I'll use an example. We need to build an end-to-end data pipeline to show some, some information. And within that pipeline, I've got, a, I've got a series of source systems that hold all the data. I've got a data lake or a lake house or a warehouse that has to take those source systems and house that data somewhere efficiently 
I've then got to build a business layer that actually turns all the all the binaries into something meaningful, mm-hmm. and then I've got a I've got a customer now, or a function or an area of mm-hmm. a of a company. Now you can you can you know the first thing you need to do is to get everyone who's who's relevant at the conversation on the same page of what you're you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to that previous point around foundational facts. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I think promising people or coming up with ideas and and how it's going to look without basing it on any factual evidence can work for a little time, but it probably yeah. can't work for a long time. So if you if you can sit down with the relevant people who are involved in that process, and there'll be there'll be senior stakeholders, there'll be technical folk, there'll be business people, and there'll be somewhere and people who do you know bits and pieces around the end to end. You need to articulate based on what you've gathered. What's the benefit for each one of those parties? Yeah. Right. So, so for for the technologists, I've always found in my career they they love new software, they love tools. Yeah. Right. Um, and I'll talk a bit on that around that's good and bad. Yeah. But so it's a chance for them to to grow their their technical footprint because technologists love that technology. I think they're very inquiring. Mm-hmm. Right. So anything that can make their job more efficient. Yeah. Um, and does some cool stuff. They really tend to orientate around, right? Yeah. The business person, in my experience, back on that, I don't care how I get the data, but I want it. Yeah. If they can get more frequency of that data and the trust that and the quality of that information has gone up, um, but the trade-off for that is you, you might have to wait a while till we build yeah. out the platform, then that's nine times out of ten people are willing to accept that. Yeah. Right? So. I'm the, I'm the poor business analyst who spends a week every month knocking up a dashboard. Mm. I no longer have to do that mm-hmm. if I wait six months for us to build build a build some kind of platform outcome. Yeah. So there's it's just finding all I mean, you'll know this life's about trade-offs and there's yeah. no different with with corporate world. Yeah. You need to find what are the most agreeable trade-offs through that process. Um and sometimes you can't find them, right? Yeah. And that's when you you need to have a have a leadership call that says we are going in this way. Yeah. Um, but the better outcome is everyone agrees agrees to the actual approach. Harder to do in larger companies, um, you need to probably have that conversation at the senior stakeholder top-down approach. Yes. Because um, companies over sort of, you know, in the 30,000 employees, you can't you physically can't get everyone, you know, around the table and you probably shouldn't. Yeah. Um, so you need to get the, re- you know, the relevant folk in the room, explain factually what we're trying to do, put options, options means trade-offs, and get, you know, what is in it for them? Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's efficiency, better data, get to play with some new tooling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you'll notice through the whole theme, it's about talking to people, mm-hmm. right? It's about actually having a human conversation um, and not managing by um, overly meeting environment or having too many emails flying around the organization. I've always found in my career, maybe because I like I like talking to people, I like sort of engaging at that level. Mm-hmm. I find you can solve a problem in five minutes that may take five weeks if you if you manage it in a in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%, 100%. Awesome. And um let's talk about data observability. Um like you know 
you know, I suppose for my benefit and and for people who have um, come across it but don't know a great deal about it, but what is data observability and why why do you think it matters? Yeah, so I'm, I've, I think this is going to be the emerging te- technology set, I think, uh, in the next sort of five years. <clears throat> There's a lot of good companies that are, you know, that are coming out with with an, an observability platform, and I'll, I'll sort of talk to that. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a way. I'll go back a step. So, in the current environment, and probably going back five years, mm-hmm. we had ETLs, right? Yeah. So people would write SQL scripts, and they'd move data around the joint. They'd, they'd use a technology product to actually do that. Mm-hmm. Um, data would land, and then every single day you have to change that code base, or you have to add a, add an engineering overlay to it, a new ETL. Yeah. And no one, and then if they were good engineers, they'd build in some latency checks, they'd build in some data checks, um, or if the governance policies were there and they would adhere to. Um, again, I've never worked in a company that doesn't do governance mm-hmm. at, the, at the theoretical level. Harder to implement governance as you scale your actual data footprint. I think lots of, lots of companies are still struggling with that. Yeah. What observability is trying to do, it's trying to do, a lot of those low-value activities, like data quality policy, mm-hmm. um, reconciliation policy, looking for schema drift, data drift at scale, mm-hmm. right, without having to involve a human. So observability is exactly what it says. It observes your data pipelines across your ecosystem. Right. And it doesn't care whether you're looking at a SQL database um, or a file, it just doesn't matter what the, the, the data type is, mm-hmm. it can, on at scale, assess your data's health. Yeah. And I, I really like the data quality, quality policy and the data reconciliation policy settings. Um, you can tie that to your um, data element mm-hmm. uh, landscape. If you're in the governance world, most companies have some, you know, critical data elements they, they have to adhere to. I know um, the companies that are looked at by the regulator need to call those out and monitor them as an active as an active activity. So what it does is it, it takes it takes having a large capability. Well, one of the things it does it takes the resourcing overhead of lo- of low value activities off the table. Right. So you can you can build up you can have a smaller capability running your observability platform at scale. And it can also, and it grows with your company as well. So I think, you know, given the advent that data is exploding around the world, the advent of cloud has let let us store more uh, with the elastic um, capabilities. It lets us grow quicker. There's a cost to that, but it it Mm -hmm. does let us grow quicker. You cannot physically do that by having the same approach to how you monitor your data. Right. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you could do it, but it would cost you a lot of money. So yeah. these products, um, and the one that I'm probably closest to is one called Excel Data. Mm-hmm. They, um, they, they are they are the emerging tech, uh, and Gartner haven't really come out with a with a category for them yet. Yeah. Um, so they'll be, um, and there's lots of other 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 products as well in, in the mix, but effectively they manage data data drift, they manage schema drift, they look at your DQ, they look at your reconciliation. Right. And they look at all the different data sources you're actually plugged into. And on a single pane of glass, it gives you a health 
status of your whole data ecosystem in real time, 24 by 7. Yeah. So you can imagine a team, you, you need a team of 100 engineers to run that that kind of practice now. Yeah. It's a really complex environment. Uh-huh. This you can do with a, a lot less. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I suppose on that, at what point does an organisation sort of consider that? Like you touched on that saying more newer, maybe uh, more sort of new, new, newer data environments might struggle, I think you said that, um, as opposed to the older Sort of environment. Um, no, no, I may have I may have there. No, what I, what I was saying was it tends to be given the advent of cloud, mm-hmm. the the need for observability is critical. Yeah. But in saying that, observability should. So let's say I've got a very an on premise environment. Yeah. Observability works just as well on, on those environments. Okay. And. You know, if I had my time again five years ago and if and if products were like this back then, I would use them to actually, I'd use them, at, it would be the first product I'd buy if I was doing a data strategy. Right, okay. Because when I said earlier, you need to have a fact-based conversation around where all your data is coming from. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what observability does. It doesn't fix your problem. Yeah. What it does, it tells you exactly what the problems are. Yeah. So if I was, I would have that as one of the first sets of uh, tools in any kind of kit bag. If I was building out a data strategy for a for a new company, even if they wanted to stay with their current technology set, but they had a chaotic data environment because they didn't know where all the data yeah. come from, it would arrive and it would be wrong, <coughs> et cetera, et cetera. That's why I think I'm probably. <clears throat> more excited about data observability mm. uh, than some of the other things coming um, off the, you know, off the technology factory floor because I find it would save so much time across a whole lot of different metrics just by having that snapshot every day of, of how that data platform is going. Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that because I think, you know, all this stuff's you know, really valuable, particularly when the companies are going through that process at the moment. So, Thanks so much for sharing your views on that. Um, now, when we're working, I suppose, in an environment or, or a company and they've got, you know, working with, um, you know, finite workforce and a budget, which, how do you know which one you should focus on um, or which one goes first? I mean, because they're, you know, they're both a necessity. So, you know, in your view or from, from your perspective, you know, what, what should the focus be? So, so in terms of you've only got finite dollars, what should you be spending yeah. the money on? Yeah, yeah, you've got a sort of a set budget and, you know, how are you going to? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So <clears throat> there's probably a couple of things there. So obviously with any, with any budget conversation, you would like to think that you've been involved in the process of formulating how much you need to do X. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do, I have seen in my career where people just get given a number and they have to manage yeah. to do that. <laughs> I think that... That is quite interesting. Part of me says that's a bad idea and part of me says it's a good idea. Now, now the part of me that says it's a bad idea mm-hmm. is you'll make decisions based on the number you get. A hundred percent, yeah. Right? So if, if, if I said it was going to cost $200 and it's going to cost me $100, then something's going to have to give. Now, that's, that's one mindset. Yeah. Now, that's the bad mindset. Mm-hmm. The good mindset would be, 
okay, well, I still want the outcome. So yeah. I, I still want the outcome to be the $200 outcome. I've only got $100, mm. so I'm going to have to innovate, mm. right? And I, I always get um, I'm always amazed to see how smaller, you know, smaller startups, you know, you look at a startup, right? Yeah. You look at a, at a fintech startup. Mm-hmm. They can do things with data connectivity-wise, AI, um, engineering pipelines that are, they innovate. Yeah. And they probably have one hundredth of the budget of some of the larger corps, right? Mm-hmm. So there is, there is a trade-off around does money solve the problem all the time? No. Mm-hmm. It does help. But sometimes I think, you know, the balance between what is, what is the optimal number within your budget to get the job done so the quality is still high, but there's an element of, of, of you have to innovate and there's less waste, right? So, I would, so I've always looked at when I've, when I've been given a number, I try to go 50% under that. Yeah. Not as a formal position. Mm-hmm. But I will sit down with with the, the the really smart people who have to come up with ways to actually execute on whatever the program might be. To so say what what would need to be true if we were going to come in, and I would never say what the number would be, but and try and try just to road test. And you know, the first round of conversations goes, oh, "We can't do that. It's rubbish. You're crazy. Everyone's everyone's yeah. a problem." And then <clears throat> as you sort of double click on that. And you start to ask a further set of questions around it. The natural innovators will actually start to come out. Remember, I said you know engineers and technical people love to innovate. Yeah. You know, and and they love to be curious. Yeah. And and, and the conversation normally ends. Yes, we could do it, but I need this. Mm-hmm. Now that may be stakeholder endorsement. Yeah. Right. It might be we have to buy some software. Now that's a much better place to be in than. There's no way we can execute on that at the same level of quality for that number. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not so much getting the balance right around who does what, I don't think. It's, it's getting, the, getting the cultural thinking right mm-hmm. and having the mindset that in any organisation, it's not your money. Yeah. Right? It's somebody else's money. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the customer's money. It's the shareholder's money. Mm-hmm. And I, and I often think, well, if it was your money, you'd be really innovative. Oh, God, oh, yeah. But you, would have, you would have solved the problem 15 times over. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really, I think, when I'm looking at budgets and execution, you have to execute. That's, that's not, oh, that's yeah. not <clears throat> we can't do it, so, you know, get stuffed. It's, we are going to execute. It's going to be at a very high level, but we need to think, differently around how we're going to get there. And I've often seen um, wishful thinking being an absolute killer. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this is a learning over my long career that when you're younger, you have wishful thinking. You yeah. think it's going to happen, right, and you want it to happen and mm-hmm. you want everyone to, to believe you that it's going to happen. But sometimes it doesn't happen. So I think wishful thinking in, in any, any kind of conversation can sometimes be a, a, a very dangerous thing. So I like to, I like to get a, a, a very real view on exactly what we're, you know, you, you know, you know, trying to achieve. Mm. And the final point would be, we we hear a lot about how we can automate stuff. Mm. Um, and this again is a cultural thing, in my view. There's no point automating 
poor process. Yeah. Right? At all. And that happens quite a lot. But yes, okay, so so let's, you know, you know, take the example. Um we say it's going to cost 200, we only get 100, so therefore we'll automate a whole lot of bad, bad processes, right? That's not, that is not innovation in my opinion. Yeah, view. yeah. Um, that's some technical really cool stuff, but it's not going to solve the problem. So, you know, in a, in a long-winded way, balancing budgets with execution comes back to having the right mindset, yeah. uh, not so much focusing on the business outcome versus the technical process. Because um, both those things are equally important, but being mindful, you need need to execute. That's never off the table. Yeah, uh, it's just again having a conversation with the right people at the right level, uh, with the right intent, uh, helps us to actually navigate. You know, navigate getting hopefully a good outcome all the time. Now, it never goes that that smoothly either. But you know, but that's that's where that's my view where you should start, mm-hmm. and that's worked for me. Um, probably more than 80% of the time over my Yeah, yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, the way you sort of um, explained it, whereby, you know, it, it it just naturally creates or enables people to be more creative um, and innovative with what they've got. So the outcome and the result still needs to happen. But what? Are, how are we going to get there and how are we going to do that as opposed to we've got endless amounts of cash, let's just find the easiest way possible. And that may not be the most innovative or the most creative way to do it. But it also creates a kind of environment within your team as well where people are not being able to, I suppose, contribute or be um, adding value through the skills that they perhaps have got, which they've not really been able to bring to the surface. I think it actually, um, you know, creates that problem-solving, that collaborative approach where everyone's working together to go, well, we have to achieve this as a team what are we? What strengths are we going to utilize with what we've got to get there? Yeah, and I, I think I think it's spot on. And I think the final point would be as it's more of a senior leader takeaway mm. is if you have that conversation and they say, "Yep, money's off the table. We can do it within the hundred dollars." But you, as a senior leader, you have to go talk to X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and you have to go and make sure they say okay. Mm-hmm. Now, some senior leaders don't like to have that conversation, but yeah. so the 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 skin in the game for, for the senior leader, it's very easy to go as a senior leader to go and talk to people and say you must do this and they, they you know, meet, meet the challenge. Mm-hmm. But as a senior leader, you need skin in the game to say, well, if we need to move X, Y and Z, you're the, you're the person that has to go and have that conversation. Yeah. I think. You need to be ready to have that conversation and you need to be ready to have it in a very serious way mm-hmm. and influence, you know, the outcome because your team have now taken the time to actually solve a problem for you. Now you need to go and solve a problem for them. Yeah. Um, and that can sometimes where it breaks down. And if that if, if that if that breaks down, that you you have an unmotivated team. Yeah. Um, so I've, and I've seen that play out as well, where the team rises, you know, you know, to the occasion, and then you can't get what they need. And it, it, nine times out of ten, it's not money. Yeah. Well, it's usually authority. Yeah. Right? At the moment, we have 20 policies saying, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to meet our timeline safely, we need to have 10 policies. Yeah. And making that happen can sometimes, um, you, know, you know, put the brakes on if the senior leader is not willing to go into bat, you know, you know, for their team. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And look, I I obviously um, hear about those kind of situations all the time, Cam, because when people are changing careers or moving roles, quite often their motivations are around the environments or the teams or the inability to have an impact, make a contribution or just be, you know, hit a brick wall of what they're able to do um, or have a leader who have a, has got all these great ideas, wants the team to rise to the challenge, but then, yeah, just doesn't doesn't take that um, to where it needs to and, you know, have those conversations with the people that need to sort of overrule some of those um, yes, those decisions. Yeah, look, in most, look if, 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 if you're a senior leader operating in a large company, there's a reason you're a senior leader. Yeah. Um, normally. Um, and you need to cash in your, your currency um, around the company to actually get some stuff done. That's, in my view, that's, that's a large part of the job. Yeah. Being able to, to actually execute on what you've been asked to execute on. And that always comes back to trade-offs. Like everything else in life, it's, a, it's normally a trade-off conversation. Yeah, definitely. And on that, in terms of obviously um, being able to successfully sort of navigate and be really successful in a complex organisation, um, you know, how have you um, sort of made that happen? Because it can be so easy to be hidden when you're in such a large organisation. Um, but also sometimes quite often, I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but sometimes quite often you feel like you're not able to be as visible. How have you sort of navigated that in the larger organisations you've worked in? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's, it's you know, you often hear a lot about bringing your authentic self to work. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a large part of that. Well, definitely, definitely for me, it worked. Um, and I'll, I'd say for anybody who's truly authentic and obviously working within the boundaries of being, you know, you know, they're respectful and things of like course. that. Um, but I think people can people can um, can can pick a fake, mm-hmm. right? Um, and people who come to work and they, you know, and it's about you know the corporate line all the time. I think people can see that for what it is sometimes. So that's one thing. I think you need to be exceptionally authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always managed my career that way. Um, look, and sometimes it probably hasn't hasn't gone the way I'd like as well because mm-hmm. I've been maybe too authentic. But that's a yeah, that's a you know that's a learning for me as well. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, these going to sound like very basic statements as mm-hmm. well. You're not. Um, you need to you need to like people. You need to understand who's who in the company, and you need to engage with those people. Uh, and even if you don't have a similar mindset or we don't share the same idea, you need to still engage with them with, you know, in a thoughtful conversation and actually be able to sit down and have good conversations because because they're easy, you know, you know, you know, to sit down and have a have a nice chat with someone and everything's positive and you're all thinking the same thing, they're, they're, they're great. Um, but it's when you need to sit down and have a difficult conversation with somebody about it might be your function, it might be a staff member, it could be yourself. Um, you need to be open and willing to have that conversation. That's number two. You need to you need to be willing to fail, um, and and be open about failure. Mm-hmm. Which is sometimes very hard in a in a large corporate because you know failure can sometimes means um, some of the incentivization you don't you don't receive. Yeah. But that, it sort of goes hand in hand with being authentic. You need to be open to failure. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody who has ever talks, any, if you listen to anybody who's successful, 
they will say, you know, they learned the most when they failed. Yeah, 100%, yeah. Now, I believe corporate or any company environment needs to allow people to fail and they need to allow people to fail safely. Yeah. Now, if you keep failing, well, that's that's probably a different a different yeah. you know, set of things. You, yeah. you may be in the wrong role. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But um, everybody makes mistakes. Um, so I think that's three. And then what I find is take some time to understand the environment of which you're working in. Mm. Get to know who's who in the zoo. Um, corporates now, compared to 25 years ago, are far flatter mm-hmm. in, in their structures. And I think, you know, your access to senior executives is a lot easier yeah. than it was. Uh, when I first got into the corporate world, it was a very much a hierarchical, you know, we have our own bathroom type setup. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. But now, it's, now it's, a, it's a lot different. So take the time to... to Get yourself known for the right things. Mm-hmm. Find yourself some good sponsors. Um, and I think it's not so much, sometimes it's not so much, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And I think if I, if, if I look at my career, in the early days when I was managing very small teams, I always felt that I needed to be the smartest person in the room and set the direction mm-hmm. and it was all a one, one-way door. Yeah. Now, sometimes it needs to be a one-way door, but probably most times it doesn't need to be a one-way door. Yeah. Um, and you can't run with that leadership style when you scale out to having teams of three, four, five hundred, or even yeah. even fifty. I'm quite yeah. yeah. So you need to not be well, not always feel you have to be have all the answers and be the smartest person in the room. Get yourself some really good sponsors who can talk to to what you're about, mm-hmm. and it doesn't need to be. Um, all about what they've done in the company. It's around what what you're like as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to value that a lot these days around what the person is like mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their of their work ethic. Um, not so much what they you know what they believe in because that's that's their own individual right you know oh, what yeah. they believe in. But it's more what they bring to work every day. Yeah. You know, are they positive? Are they authentic? Are they upset some days? And that's perfectly okay. Um, and just really being aware that everyone is very, very different and then trying to not change that person. You need to work with that person's style. Mm. So, look, you know, you know, to answer your question, how, you know, how do you navigate it? You need to know people. Mm. You need to have sponsors. You need to be authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to fail in a safe way and actually and, but learn from it. Don't just yeah. keep failing because that's probably yeah. not going to work out for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just and just try to enjoy what you do. Yeah, yeah. So I think if, if you don't enjoy what you do and you're spending forty hours a week there, then you're going to have a pretty awful life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and also I will say this: if it's not working out, leave. Yeah. Don't don't feel if well. So I say that if you can leave. I know some people yeah. are in a situation where that's almost impossible to do. Mm-hmm. But if you have the means to have to be able to say, you know what, this this role is not for me. Yeah. There might be another role in the company that is, but if the company's not for you, then then don't be afraid to try to find something else. Mm, yeah. You know, because yeah. um, life, life is, it's, it's a cliche, but life does go by pretty quick. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, um, I mean, you talked about, you know, having the right people in the team. I mean, from your perspective, what makes a successful data or technical uh, practitioner? What sort of traits do you think? Um, in, you know, in, terms, in terms of the, of the people who do the work? 
Yeah, so I think in your, uh, you know, you've had um, large teams throughout your career. You've probably hired numerous amounts of individuals. I mean, in in your view, what, what are the sort of traits that you think make somebody sort of stand out? Um, a lot of what I've just talked about, actually. Yeah. Those, those those are probably the traits. Um, but from someone who's who's doing the work, yeah, more the technical side. Yeah, or, yeah. they. They need to be proud of their end product, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And we often talk about end product as, you know, and I'll use banking as the example, you know, everything we do is for the customer. Now, that is true. That is true. Everything we do is for the customer. But if you're coding a, a, a data pipeline mm-hmm. and technology, you can actually draw a link to a customer, but that's not kind of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... If your role is is to build data pipelines for a pricing a pricing engine, let's say, be very proud of your part of that chain. So make sure the end product from you, the individual, is always as good as you can make it, right? Because and then so if you've got five people in your team, one person does that, the other person's a really good um, person that can build dashboarding. You know, mm-hmm. to use some old, you know, some old old world language, <laughs> um, they build really slick dashboards, you know, it's got, you know, humid centre design. It's, it, that's a really good end product. Yeah. So, and they care about it. Yeah. Uh, and they care about it because, A, they want to do a good job for their employer. Nine to- sometimes, I mean, again, another another cliche, but I think it's one, mm-hmm. people come to work for the direct people leader. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Nine times out of ten, well, you'd know this being, you know, you know, being in this game. So, you want a team that is proud of themselves, mm-hmm. proud of their work. Uh, I think is a high, and they want to do a good job for everybody within their team and yeah. the, and their manager potentially. Um, and your role as the person leading that team, whether you're a senior, a senior leader or a or a manager, or whatever it is, your your job's almost like you're 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 running the the orchestra. Yeah. Right. So every one of those people is playing a note. Right now, if you weren't there to do it, it might sound okay, mm-hmm. you know, and then it'd probably finish the you know finish the piece after a while, but it might sound a wee bit clunky, right? Yeah. Your job is to be available enough to actually make sure that they're all playing in the right tune, and they're all playing as well as they can play. Mm-hmm. So. Teams that I've been in that, that that have done well operate like that, right? Teams where that haven't gone well, you've got some guy on the drums and he's banging the drums as loud as you can, and, yeah. no one, and you can't hear anybody else. So it's just it's getting that that balance within your team and getting people who care about themselves and and the outcome and yeah. and and everybody around them. Not so much um, people who are experts at one thing and, and one thing alone and, and nothing else matters. Yeah. I've seen those people and they're, and they're very, very talented, mm-hmm. but they can sometimes disrupt the ecosystem of the, of the, of the broader team. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that is, I mean, you know, I have interesting conversations sometimes with clients where they're, you know, as we're sort of navigating this challenging talent market at the moment, particularly at that that mid level, um, where they're afraid almost to to lose people in their team. But if you've got people and you know who are being causing a bit of a disruption to the harmonious team that you've got, like 
as hard as it is, you you just have to let them go. Like if you yeah. know you can't just keep them in the worry that you're not going to be able to refill that position because I think your team will be a lot happier, or you'll end up losing the good ones or the ones that keep the harmony over the one that's perhaps being a bit you know a bit disruptive or perhaps uh, doesn't want to you know play alongside everyone else. So um, I think I think it's uh, I think it's spot on what you've mentioned there. Yeah, look, I've I've always found if if you've got a team that's harmonious and I, I actually like that word, um, you can do a lot more with less. Yeah. You don't you don't need the larger team if if, if you've got a small harmonious team. They all know their role. They all want to grow within their role. The other thing I didn't mention. You need to you need to let them grow in the role. Mm-hmm. And I've had times when someone's been just an absolute rock star. Yeah. And they come to you and you know that you've got a few things hanging off the back of how how good that person is. And they say, uh, I've got another job offer. It's part of my career plan and I want to go and do it. Mm-hmm. And I want your blessing for it. Yeah. I've seen people um, get really, really concerned by that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I've tried in my career to be really excited by that mm. um, because I wouldn't have wanted anybody to stop me doing something that I wanted to do within a company or a different organisation. I don't think that's fair to do it to someone that's working within your team. And that just shows that they're learning and they're growing and um, it's time for them to move on. Yeah, and that, shows, and that shows everybody else within that team that there is a pathway for them. Um, so that that can sometimes be a bit of a an, an issue as well, where we we have this harmonious team, and then all of a sudden, my my key base player is left. You know, yeah. what am I going to do? But I think that's also okay. Yeah, oh, definitely. Look, and I think that, that that those situations occur quite often. And you know, the reality is that you, as the leader, and and the team have enabled that person to get to that stage. So that's a credit to you, anyway, for. Getting, to, getting them to that stage. But also, if you don't have the opportunities that they want within your team or somewhere else in the organisation, like you said, absolutely spot on. I think, um, you know, uh, enabling them and allowing them to sort of move on to better things is definitely um, definitely the right attitude. No, I agree. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't. You just, you just, you just can't. Because it, it, let, let's say you actually do keep the person there. It's not going to be harmonious anymore. No, no. So, you know. Yeah. Again, these are all pretty pretty basic concepts we're sort of talking about, but yeah, sometimes yeah. it doesn't quite go that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Look, it's been it's been really really good. Um, and I know, um, Cabinet, you also have uh, a company where you do advisory work. What sort of um, you know, what sort of work do you do when you know if people did want to sort of get in touch with you? What's the kind of projects and and things that you can help organisations with? Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's a company called Yugo Advisory. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's about data leadership, um, but I'd say it's more more strategy and execution focused, mm-hmm. um, more so than coming and talking about the theory of data. Okay. Um, so what I get involved with is helping companies if they if they actually if they're transforming mm-hmm. uh, into you know the modern day technologies. You know what is a logical sequence of of ways you could do that given my experience, or it could be that you've got some chaos on your platform that you need resolved mm-hmm. um, uh, or running or running an, an, an operational uh, team. So it's really anything to do with data and, and, and what data means for your company, mm-hmm. I sort of get involved with. 
Yeah. Uh, given my sort of experiences over the last couple of you know, couple of decades. Geez, decades, yeah. Um, don't be so happy. Decades. <laughs> oh look, I, I you know I, I've been in recruitment for for close to twenty years, so I'm not too far off. There you go. You, you would have you <laughs> seen it all. So, yes. so any any problems companies are having just in their whole data ecosystem? Yeah. Um, I, I tend to get involved with um, all the way from strategy to, to execution and and running and running programs. So Excellent. happy to talk to anybody who fo- who would find that useful for them if I came oh. and came and helped them out. Excellent. And is it a particular size of organisations, or can you sort of go in and sort uh, of help any size of organisation? I mean, my start or yeah, my my background has been the large corporates, mm-hmm. um, but in saying that. Um, a smaller outfit will be just as as enjoyable, I think, and yeah. it would come it would come with a different set of challenges, but yeah. there would be challenges nonetheless, I'm sure. Yeah, brilliant, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining today, Cam. It's it's actually been really really insightful for me. I, I love doing these um these uh, podcast recordings because I learn so much from you know amazing data leaders like yourself. So thank you so much. If anybody wanted to get in contact with you who's listened to the podcast um and just wanted to touch base, connect with you on LinkedIn, be happy for them to reach out. Sure. No, that'd be great. It'd be lovely. And and thank you for the time. It's always it's always difficult, you know, can you, you know, can you fill an hour? But um yeah. I've actually filled an hour quite easily. I could probably do do another hour. Uh, exactly. I was gonna say we probably could have done a bit more, but uh, no it's been great. Thank you so much. Pleasure.